This morning, uh, we're going to continue on the same lead that we had from our drama team this morning in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He told them, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is so written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people." When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you have recorded these facts for us to be able to gather on a Sunday like this. Lord, to review, to hear, to meditate, to think about what these wondrous events mean to our lives for all of history and for this moment and for this season. So Lord, I pray that you would give us soft hearts and attentive ears, Lord, so that we can hear what your spirit has for our lives today. We pray this in your name. Amen. It was my friend Mark Cooper who finally convinced me to ride the python at Bush Gardens. I had walked by this ride many a time and had wanted to stay away because the loops. I was okay with the drops, but I did not like the loops. And this roller coaster had two different uh, loops. It had two different inversions. And I'm like, I'm not riding that until finally Mark Cooper uh, got tired of just walking around saying, we're riding the big ride. It's time that we did this. Now, this ride had two inversions. It reaches 75 feet high and it has a top speed of 40 miles an hour. They, they actually shut the ride down in 2006. Uh, must have been too dangerous or something like that. Uh, but it turns out that today, those are pretty tame uh, specifications for a roller coaster. Uh, in fact, there is a roller coaster outside of Pittsburgh called the Steel Curtain. It has nine different inversions. You go upside down nine different times. There's a there's a roller coaster in England called the Smiler that goes upside down 14 total times. In New Jersey, there's a, there's a roller coaster called the Kinga Ka. 
It reaches 456 feet high. It has a top speed of 128 miles an hour that you reach in three and a half seconds. But it's not the fastest roller coaster in the world. The Formula Rosa at Ferrari World in Abu Dhabi. Uh, has the fastest roller coaster in the world. It has a top speed of 149 miles an hour. Now, I don't know exactly how you react to all of those facts. I don't know whether you're buying a ticket to Abu Dhabi right now and say, I've got to get on that ride. Uh, I nothing else. I want to visit Ferrari World. Uh, I, I don't know what you think about that, but I want you to just imagine with me for a moment if your best friend said, listen, what I want to do for you this Christmas is I want to take you to ride my favorite roller coaster in the world. He says, in fact, I've been saving up all year for this treat. I want to take you to ride what is my favorite, the world's greatest roller coaster there is. And so you travel some distance to arrive at this place. You work your way through the crowds. Imagine if we had a place where we had crowds again. You work your way through the crowds once again. You get in place. You stand in line for an hour. You finally reach the front of the line. You get strapped into the car like you've never been strapped into anything in your entire life. And then you sit there for 90 seconds and they tell you that it's time to get out of the ride. And your friend looks at you and says, wasn't that the best thing ever and you just kind of look at your friend we drove all of this way we spent all of this money we stood in line we never moved I never felt anything I am in the exact same place now that I was when we started what is the deal with this the good news that I want to share with you this morning is that Jesus came to move us. Here's the good news. Jesus came to move us. In fact, the reality is, is that Jesus came to rearrange every single part of my life. Jesus came to rearrange every single part of your life. He came to move us. He came to make us feel things. He came to make sure that we can't ever say, I'm in the exact same place at the end that I was at the beginning. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Jesus came to move us. Now that's what I want you to take away this morning. That's what I want you to know. That's what I want you to experience and to be able to scream from the greatest mountaintops. Jesus came to move us. That's the point. Now, there are several ways in which you can miss that point. And in fact, as we take a look at our passage of Scripture this morning, what we find is that we find that there are several ways in which they did miss the point. That Jesus came to move us. Now what I want to do is I want us to just kind of look through the text this morning. And I want to help you make sure that you don't miss the reality that Jesus came to rearrange our lives and to move us. And I, want, I don't want you to miss that. So let's unpack that this morning. How is it that you can miss the reality that Jesus came to move us? Well, we miss it because we fear 
what Jesus might do. We miss it because we fear what Jesus might do. Right here in the center of this story here is the story of Herod. And Jason played that so well for us this morning, I don't know if I'm going to sleep tonight. Uh, because he played this villain of villains to the, to the T in terms of what kind of a person that he was. What we find out in this passage of Scripture is that Herod is insecure. We find in this place that Herod has a heart that has no interest in really worshiping Jesus or any king that is to come. What we find as we read further into the text, as we read the rest of Matthew chapter 2, we find out that Herod not only has his heart closed to who Jesus is, but he wants to make sure that Jesus never functions as a rival to him in life and to his rule and to his power and to his authority. In fact, what he arranges is is that he wants to make sure that Jesus is snuffed out. His life is ended. Now the problem is that the wise men don't come back, so he doesn't know which one is Jesus. So being a dark and evil man, Herod says, fine, I'll just kill all the little ones. I'll just make a rule that anyone that is, say, younger than two years old, I'll execute all of those. Now that's what the word of God tells us. Now what's interesting is that history tells us some other things about this Herod as well. History tells us that this Herod executed two of his brother-in-laws, which makes Thanksgiving kind of awkward after that. It's okay, Herod, it's not okay just to be clear, but it's, it's consistent with Herod because he also kills one of his wives. And just for good measure, he kills two of his own sons. Now, you would think that kind of person might have an opportunity to reflect that, you know, having lived this kind of a life, I don't know how many people are going to cry when I die. And it seems as though as Herod approached the end of his life, he began to worry about that. He says, you know what, I might not have been so popular. People aren't necessarily going to miss me. And what history tells us is that Herod had a whole series of people imprisoned as he was getting ready to die. And the plan was, the the rules that he left behind is that on the day that Herod died, all of those folks that he had imprisoned should be executed. That way he could guarantee that at least some people were crying on the day that he died. Herod was a dark man. Now, to understand a little bit about who Herod is and why he he had these issues, is if you take a look at the map here, Herod is the king of the Jews, but he's not really Jewish. In fact, if you look at the map, Herod comes from a region that's called Edom or Edomia, which is the area in the red. The area to the northwest, that's Judea. And Herod had become king over Judah because of some backroom deals and politics and he knew some people in Rome and all those kinds. He went to school with some folks, seriously. He went to school with like the emperor's kids and stuff like that. So he got this because of some deals that were cut, which always left him a little bit insecure. But when the wise men come and say, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. That just kind of sticks a little bit to Herod because Herod knows he wasn't born the king of the Jews. He only was there because of backroom deals. And if there's one who really has a birthright, who was born from the moment they first drew breath, that that's really the true king, Herod knows that he has no standing against someone who was really born the king of the Jews. Herod as he begins to investigate 
these prophecies and he, he, he finds the one about Bethlehem. But also remember the, the wise men are coming because they are following a star. He would have investigated that passage about the star as well. And that passage is from Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. And this is the prophet Balaam that says, I see him but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead. Some translations say the corners of Moab and break down all of the sons of Shith. Let's go back to the map for a moment. There's Moab at the top of the red. This prophecy of the star says that this one who is going to be born is going to crush the corners of Moab. What's the corners of Moab? That's Herod. Herod, these visitors... Everything about this visit from the Magi, from the wise men, is a direct hit on Herod's ample fears and insecurities. I'm not making excuses for Herod, but I'm just telling you, this is why Herod is troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. It's because he is afraid that Jesus is going to rearrange everything about his life, his power, his authority, his kingdom, his rule, his lifetime, everything that Herod has gotten used to, he suddenly has deep fear that whoever this Jesus is is going to turn all of that upside down. Now, my assumption is that we don't have any Herods that are here today. But I will tell you that I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that many of us do at times have a fear or an insecurity or a worry about what Jesus might turn over and rearrange in my life. In fact, if we come to worship and we come and, and there are times in which we want to play it safe because we were, we're not really comfortable that if Jesus is everything that they say that he is, if Jesus has the authority that we talk about, if Jesus is the person of scripture, if Jesus is the person that we sing about in worship, that would be incredibly disruptive to my life, to my kingdom, to my order, to my lifestyle, to all the things that I'm used to having the way it is. And in fact, I don't think it's an entirely foreign experience for people like us to come to church with some degree of caution and say, listen, I'll go so far with my faith, but there's a line here that I can't go any further because if I go any further, he's going to disrupt and rearrange parts of my life that I don't want rearranged. And so we come and we build walls around our heart and around our spirit. We keep Jesus at a safe distance. We never allow ourselves to have an unguarded spiritual moment because Jesus might rearrange something in my life that I don't want rearranged. I have to be honest with you. Jesus came to move us. Jesus came to rearrange our life. There was no point of him leaving heaven. There's no point of him being born in a stable. There's no point of him having the ministry that he had. There's no point of his giving his life for us. There's no point in the resurrection if it's just supposed to leave us in the exact same spot we were when we started. What is the point of a Jesus that doesn't move us? 
Hear me, hear me, hear me. Jesus came to move us. But I would also tell you that according to John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus came to give us life. And when he uses that word life, he talks about the fullness of everything. He says that, you may, that he came to give us life and that we may have life abundantly with no limits. Now that's not a blank check. That's saying I will give you all of the best things, many of which you don't even understand yet. I will give you the best things in life. Just trust me and let me move you and let me rearrange some of the pieces in your life that need to be rearranged. But we miss out on this. If our fear that Jesus might change something I like causes us to build walls where we don't allow him access to our life. I would also tell you that we miss it when we settle for close to Jesus instead of the real Jesus. This brings us back to the wise men. I think I love this passage of scripture because there's just, man, there's so many things that we don't know. There's so many things about the wise men. How many wise men were they? Where exactly did they come from? How did they hear these things? What did the star look like? All of these things that we ask. In fact, I would describe these guys are the original international men of mystery. We have no idea who these guys are. What it tells us is that they come from the east. Persia, Babylon, modern day Iraq. I think that it's most likely, in my mind, is that, that there was the influence of the Jewish captivity, where because of a punishment on the people of God, many of them were carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, and they spent 70 years there, and they established teaching synagogues there in Babylon, and they became a place of influence inside of the Babylonian culture, and I think what you're finding here is that there were a series of people who continued to study the Word of God from the Jewish Old Testament. And so that when they see this star and it recognizes to them from Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17 and they have a hunger and a thirst for these things and so up they go. When they see the star, they recognize it and they leave wherever they are probably hundreds and hundreds of miles away and they begin to follow the star would eventually land over Bethlehem and as they travel all of those hundreds of miles, they get so close as they come the star is getting closer and closer and closer here's what I think happens they are following the star they are looking for Jesus they are looking for this place and just about the time they get close they start to see the billboards for Jerusalem now I don't know if Jerusalem has as many billboards as Bucky's but just as you get close there's the big city with the big temple the big palace, the big man inside, and you think, this must be it. This star is a big deal. Jerusalem is an important place. This must be it. And I think they take their eyes off the star because they get distracted by the traditions and the bigness and the fame of Jerusalem. And what happens is they get there in Jerusalem is that they are so close but not there. They came to see Jesus and they ended up with Herod. They came to see Jesus and they stopped in Bethlehem. 
Imagine if what you wanted to do during this break between the school year and this semester and next semester, you said, you know what, let's just load the family up in the car and let's go see the Grand Canyon. 1,500 miles to see the Grand Canyon. You drive through all kinds of traffic. You get, you get lost a couple times. You pull out some maps, and you go 1,500 miles to see the Grand Canyon. And then you get three miles away and say, you know what? This will do. This is close. I mean... You can get in television stations from the Grand Canyon here. This is, this is really close. This is close enough. Let's just stop right here. We've seen the things that are close to the Grand Canyon. Boy, whoever was making decisions in that car would be fired, wouldn't they? We, we, we came all this way not to get close to the Grand Canyon. We want to see the Grand Canyon. Being close to the Grand Canyon is not the same thing as seeing the Grand Canyon. Let me tell you, spiritually, I think that the wise men made that same mistake almost. They came close. And they got distracted by the other things. And they got distracted by what looked spiritual, what looked like the right place. And they got distracted by the temple and the palace and the king and all of those things. And they could have missed the whole journey. I want to tell you that it happens in our lives as well. They're not the last people to make that mistake. In fact, we would say that we want to meet Jesus and we settle for going to church. We say we want to meet and hear from Jesus and we settle for just reading our Bible. We say we want to meet Jesus and we spend time praying. Now hear me. Hear me, all of those things matter. But church isn't Jesus. Bible reading isn't relationship. Praying isn't worship. We go to church to find Jesus. We read the word to hear Jesus. We pray so that we can meet with Jesus. But church and Bible reading and even praying is not the same thing as an encounter with Jesus. It is possible that you have rearranged your day to be here in this building this morning. And it's possible not to meet with Jesus in this place. It is possible for you to make a commitment in 2021 that you're going to read your Bible all the way through. And for you to even do it. But it's possible for you to not meet Jesus. You just read a lot of pages. It is possible even for you to say a prayer on a regular basis. But you haven't met with Jesus. Don't settle for close. Don't settle for the parking lot to the Grand Canyon. Go all the way there. Because Jesus will move you. He will rearrange your life. You won't be the same again. But if you settle for close to, to sort of, to kinda, to close, because it's the big building, the big tradition, whatever it may be, you will miss out on what Jesus wants to do, can do, and will do inside of your life.
One more way that a person can miss this is that we hold our gifts too tight. We hold our gifts too tight. The wise men get back on the road and they find Jesus. Now there's a little bit of a debate here about how long this takes. You know, we, we talked in the drama this morning, and you've probably heard it talk about the fact that Jesus is now, that the family is now in a house, but that could have happened in a matter of days after Jesus' birth. Hey, we, we also uh, talk about the idea that this is two years when, when Herod executes all of the infants two years and younger. But I'm going to tell you, the kind of person that Herod was, he was not going to miss Jesus by a rounding error. And he wasn't going to miss executing Jesus because Jesus was either a big baby or a little baby. And, and so I, I think that it's quite possible that this is a much shorter period of time than the two years. But either way, when they walk into that house, the wise men find an infant and they pour in to their bags and into their supplies and into their resources and they pull out these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, let's be practical just for a moment. What is that baby going to do with gold, frankincense, and myrrh? I mean, how is that baby going to use gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Will that baby even know that you gave that infant gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Will that baby even remember that you are here? After all, I mean, they've spent a lot of gas getting to Bethlehem. And they've got to make the return trip as well. They need to hold on to some of those supplies to get back. Isn't the journey just enough? Isn't the adventure enough? In fact, the truth is they've gone further than anybody else has. Doesn't that count? You see, I think it's possible that they could have arrived and not worshipped. But the passage of Scripture tells us that they gave their gifts and they worshiped. In fact, I want you to notice that in all of the story of Jesus' birth in Luke and all of the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew, it is only these foreigners that are described as worshiping Jesus. And the gifts represented that worship. You see, these were places where it was love over logic. It was recognition of the greatness of God rather than practical considerations, rather than saying, well, you know what, this probably is enough. But you see, the wise men, somehow when they saw that infant, understanding the things that they understood, they recognized that this infant was the king of the Jews, was the Messiah, was the promised one of David who rearranges our lives. They could have arrived and not worshipped, but they worshipped when they let loose of the things that they had been gripping onto. Now, I'm not just talking about stewardship in this moment, but I'm talking about our hopes and our dreams. I'm talking about some of the same things that I talked about at the beginning, parts of our own personal kingdoms that we just kind of hold on to and say, this is mine. 
As long as we are grabbing on to stuff and saying, this is mine, then it holds us back from truly worshiping. As long as we come in with logical considerations and practical parameters, our hearts aren't free to worship. There's something illogical about love. There's something reckless about worship. I'm not asking you to be crazy, but I'm asking you to be slightly less careful, worried about how this plays out, what someone else may think, what your experience, what your pattern, what your practice, what your tradition is. Let loose of some of those things that you're holding on to. I want to think for a moment or two about the now what. The, the first thing in terms of how do we apply this is simply maybe you're here this morning and, and you need to say yes to Jesus. Now you may be a veteran church attender and you've heard this conversation about saying yes to Jesus before. And somehow you've been able to build some walls and some safety nets around your heart where you've never really allowed that conversation to go very deep inside of your heart, mind, or spirit. But maybe somehow, someway this morning on this Christmas Sunday 2020, you've seen the star like you've never seen it before. Not necessarily a physical star in the sky, but a message that says, look at Jesus, find Jesus. He's worth the trip from anywhere. He is it. And if you've seen that for the first time and that's been allowed to cut through, cut through the clutter of your heart, mind, and spirit, and you're ready to say yes to Jesus as the forgiver of your sins, the master of your life. And maybe that's what you need to do this morning. It's as simple as a personal prayer that you pray and say, Jesus, I want to say yes to you. I want you to forgive the brokenness and the sin in my life. And I want you to be that north star of my life that I filter every decision of my life through. Maybe that's what you need to do today. You can do that before this sermon is finished. You can just duck out mentally from anything else that we say and you just say, I need to do that right where I am. There's just no pattern or magic words. It's the revealing of your heart saying, Jesus, I see it. And I want what you've done in my life. If you need to talk about this some more, I'm going to be at the back table under the breezeway in the back. I'm always there uh, to have this kind of conversation. You can call the church office. I'm, I'm there most of this week, this week. Would love to talk to you about that. A couple other quick applications this morning, though, before you leave that I want you to think about. I want you to take an inventory of your life. And here's what I want you to do. You've got to use your imagination a little bit. But I want you to think about the inside of your life as a kingdom. The places that you're in charge of, the places that you have control over, the places you're trying to get control over, the places that you think you have control over. And I want you to imagine Jesus walking through that kingdom of your life. 
And as Jesus walks through that kingdom of your life, he puts a hand here and touches this and puts a hand here and he opens up this closet and he goes into this room and he looks under this bed and he looks in the attic. I want you to take a quick inventory. What part of life, what part of your kingdom that when Jesus walks through and puts his hand on it, makes you as nervous as all get out. For you to say, Jesus, I, I love having you in the living room. Jesus, you can sit down and eat here in the dining room anytime that you want. But please, please stay away from there. Oh, I hope Jesus doesn't open that drawer. I hope Jesus doesn't go in that place. Here's what I want to say to you. That part that you're most nervous about Jesus touching, that part that you're most nervous about Jesus rearranging in your life is quite possibly the most important thing that you need to deal with next. And that part begins with saying, Jesus, it's messy. Jesus, I really like being in charge of this more than you being in charge of this. Jesus, this is really, really important to me. but I'm giving you the key. And you can begin to rearrange even this part of my life. Man, that's scary, isn't it? But Jesus came to move us and to rearrange our life. One more thing I'll just challenge you with. I would just challenge you to being open in this week to having at least one moment that doesn't make sense. One moment that's outside of the boundaries of logic and practical considerations. One moment where your passion for Jesus exceeds. You're counting the cost, wondering what other people think, wondering what this looks like, realizing, well, this isn't the kind of thing that I do. Maybe it's with your resources, but maybe it's when you say something that you know you're supposed to say, but you've never said out loud before. Maybe, I don't know, some place where your passion for Jesus outweighs your logic and practical considerations. That's what worship is. It's not just being reckless for reckless sake, but at some point in time, we stop living careful so that we never stick out. Let me pray for you.